Peter Harrell, who was Biden's senior director for international economics and competitiveness, is uh, has recently uh, left the White House and is now in uh, private practice as a lawyer and consultant. He's also a Carnegie uh, fellow, joins to talk about uh, U.S.-China and the nature of the executive branch. Uh, Peter, welcome to China Talk. So I want to pose a bit of a conundrum that I have seen uh, over the past few years of the Biden administration, which I think probably applies more broadly, maybe with the Trump era being the exception of like what executive things end up happening and what executive branch things end up not happening. So we have a few interesting case studies over the past few years where, you know, on China Talk, we've done a lot of um, sort of back and forth and nitpicking around uh, the semiconductor export controls. But they are very much an enormous sort of bureaucratic lift, which has ended up manifesting in, in, in reality and in the marketplace. And then we've had stuff like TikTok. We've had stuff like outbound investment screening, which um, for whatever reason has not ended up manifesting in the way that, um, you know, uh, some would have imagined. So I'm curious, Peter, to start off, if you can sort of like, give a bit of a typology of what, you know, leads ideas that are primarily executive branch driven to like end up, you know, existing versus ones that kind of get stuck in the um, in the bureaucracy and, and, and run into roadblock after roadblock and end up either sort of being neutered out of existence or just like being push, pushed, uh, pushed aside and other things take take precedence. Well, Jordan, I think that's a great question. And I, I should begin, of course, by saying we're not quite through three years uh, of a four-year presidential term. And, and that means there's still time for an administration to do more uh, over its remaining uh, 15, 16 months, uh, obviously just in 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 this term. Um, look, I think the Biden administration uh, started 2021 with a set of economic objectives and technological objectives towards China. Obviously, some diplomatic and military objectives as well, but I'll let others speak to those. Um, and I think with respect to the economic and technological objectives, it really was, going back to the early days of the administration, uh, a recognition that there were a set of key technologies that we needed to maintain a technological edge in. Uh, there was a set of what we're now kind of calling de-risking in the economic relationship that we would need to move out on to reduce supply chain dependencies and China's control over key choke points um, uh, for the U.S. Uh, economy. And then there are a set of kind of technological and economic risks that bleed into national security, things like cross-border uh, data flows, high-risk cross-border uh, data flows. All of these are quite complicated uh, issues. Individually, any one of these is quite complicated. The technological relationship really quite deep um, with tens of billions of dollars at least of investment and hundreds of billions of dollars of trade between uh, the two countries. Data flows, uh, an enormously complicated uh, set, of, uh, set of issues. And when you look at um, supply chain issues, vulnerabilities and dependencies across a whole range of critical sectors. So the administration, I think, knew going into this that it couldn't bite off everything at once. It was going to have to engage in some phasing and sequencing of how it approached the U.S.-China uh, technological relationship. 
Uh, and I think it made sense for the administration to focus, you know, first on some of the technological issues, some of the semiconductor uh, issues uh, that we've seen come out about a year ago. And we just saw some additional um, uh, amendments on just uh, earlier uh, earlier this week. I think the administration has been working with Congress on a number of the data issues. There's a reality uh, that our statutory regime, our underlying legal regimes for managing U.S.-China data flows and software relationship and things like that uh, is just um, has a lot of gaps in it. And there are sharp limits to what the executive branch, I think, can do without uh, additional congressional authority. And we're going to need to see Congress act uh, on uh, on some of those. And then on the supply chain front, you've seen a lot of investment in the United States. And I think that um, USTR and other parts of the administration are kind of continuing to work through, um, you know, what the tariff uh, type approach to reducing supply chain uh, vulnerabilities and dependencies should be. So I think it was always going to be uh, phasing and sequencing um, over the course of a number of years to get uh, get this set of policies right. Okay, so I want I want to stay on this question though because I think it's a really interesting one. Like in the typologies, well, I guess there's there's two questions. There's one, it's like the like what drives a prioritization of let's do let's focus time and energy and political capital on uh you know first, second, and third. And then there's a the broader question of like what are the sort of once we pick thing X, like what are the like accelerants as well as decelerants that drive it. So maybe let's do the let's do the first one when you're thinking about sort of what ends up um maybe like ideally and 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 in practice in a in an administration. And we can speak maybe more generally than just like what's happened over the past few years of like what you think are the are the sort of principles and maybe how much they they do end up carrying over from administration to administration versus our, versus our particular to a given president. Yeah, well, I let me actually start by speaking to this administration, because I think when it came to competition with China, whether it is technological competition or the economic competition, this president came in and said, in order to maintain and expand our lead technologically or economically, uh, we actually have to start first by investing more here at home. And that also applies, I think, to the supply chain uh, dependencies. So, you know, I think it was February of uh, 2021, about a month into the presidency, when the president issued uh, Executive Order 14017, which was a national supply chain executive order uh, that put front and center the need across a set of key technologies uh, including electric vehicle batteries, pharmaceuticals, and semiconductors, we had to do more to build our supply chain resilience and to reduce our dependency on China. And that really began by focusing on the domestic agenda, uh, um, domestic investment agenda. And that was just a strategic approach of you can kind of control what gets sent over to China all you want. You can try to limit you know, what comes in from China all you want. But if you hadn't haven't first made the foundational investments here, we're not going to be innovating the next generation of technology that we might want to control going over there. And we're also not going to be able to find alternative supplies of the stuff we're currently importing and dependent on from uh, from China. So I think this administration really took a 
uh, investment-first approach. And if you look at kind of 2021, a lot of the work was about uh, getting that domestic investment agenda right. I think then in 2022, after we made some headway on the domestic agenda, then you start to look more at the control um, and uh, outward flow uh, agenda. And so you start seeing a lot of movement on semiconductors. You begin to see the administration urge Congress to take some steps on TikTok and some of the other uh, software and app uh, issues that are out there. And you also begin to see uh, the administration gear up for the executive order on outbound investment that was ultimately released uh, a couple of months ago, um, earlier yeah. uh, earlier this year. I do want to say in terms of of how you pick which specific issues uh, to work on, do you focus on, you know, export controls on semiconductors versus, you know, tariffs on goods? Um, I think that, that there is an element of that that is an administration which has many players uh, in it trying to come together early on and reach some internal consensus on the relative priority of those different issues. So you try over your first couple of months to sort of say, this is kind of tier one, that the issues we want to focus on, you know, tier two, tier three. Um, but you don't totally control your ability to make progress even on items within one of those tiers because, you know, you might discover actually the industry is more complicated than you thought it was. You might discover there's a political constituency angle that you weren't expecting. You might discover, you know, statutory bases aren't what you thought they were and Congress may or may not, you know, fix that problem. So, you, you know, while you try to go into this having identified a couple of tiers and getting five or six agencies who may have different views on the same page there, you also can't totally control um, the pace at which you, you, you move these issues forward. Gotcha. That's fascinating. So, so two, two, two elements you, 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 you just raised are like the making sure your cabinet secretaries and your assistant secretaries and everyone else's is, is, is aligned. And then in the process of trying to make policy around these things, you actually uncover issues and, and roadblocks and potentially opportunities as well that weren't in the framing and like getting everyone on board process. Yeah, I think that's absolutely uh, that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, I, I just think these issues, uh, many of these issues, given the depth of the uh, existing relationship, are just enormously complicated. And so it's not it should never be surprising that um, some of these processes end up taking a bit longer than those of us who set out on them uh, might have hoped at the beginning. Yeah. Um to what extent would you also put in like, you know, uh, sort of regulatory crud, a lack of uh, capacity, a lack of bodies in the EEOB or senior advisors running around? Like, do, do you see that um, if like, I don't know, the government could pay people more or just like hire more people or fire bad people? Like how much of, of, of the actual like humans doing the work once the priorities get set um, ends up? Uh, uh, slowing down things that could potentially be sped up if, you know, America had a Singapore-level civil service? Well, I'll come back to the civil service element uh, in a moment, but the, the point I want to make that's uh, point I want to make that's antecedent to the civil service is that the U.S. government 
knowledge on what the U.S.-China technological and economic uh, relationship is, just facts of what the trade flows look like, what the investment flows look like, what we're importing, what we're exporting, what are we really dependent on, um, is just woefully inadequate. Um, you know, especially on the 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 export side. I mean, on the import side, because you know what we import gets kind of tariffed and categorized. You get you can get some data on at least what you're what you're what you're importing. Less than you might hope, but you at least have some data. But the export on the export side, you know, historically we don't require a lot of documentation on exports. You just don't have a lot of that information out there. Similar on investment. I mean, there's some private firms that do great uh, research, try to do great research off of you know business news and things like that on what investment flows look like. But that's not generally information the U.S. government has a lot of um, you know a lot of access to, other than what you can kind of buy uh, commercially, and so. You come into this trying to make decisions in a in an information vacuum, and I think the U.S. government needs to do a uh, much better job over time of really building out uh, data and expertise on what the technological and economic relationship looks like, what you know things are actually being invested in, what things are being exported, what's coming in, and without better information. It's hard to make decisions right. And I think it was relevant, for example, on semiconductors. It just took the government some time to really develop expertise uh, in order to be able to make good decisions. So let's stay on that for a second. You know, this has been one of my hobby horses. Um, There was a bill, uh, I think Senator Bennett, the Office of Competitive Analysis, the Office of Net Tech Assessment, also a phrase that gets, gets bandied around. Like, it seems to me like very penny wise and pound foolish not to spend the, oh, I don't know, like $40 million a year um, to, to, to sort of create the, the sort of internal capacity to do this more rigorous um, uh, sort of tech and, and, and economic analysis of the relationship. What is, what is stopping that from, from being a capacity that the federal government invests in, in, in building out as opposed to like, you know, the marginal person who's going to study PLA tanks or whatever. So I I, I completely agree with you, uh, Jordan. You know, we spend, I mean, who knows? I, I suspect it is hundreds of millions to billions of dollars a year uh, understanding Chinese military capabilities and really trying to unpack, as you say, what tanks are they building? You know, what what gadgetry is in their new aircraft carrier? You know, what what are their new airplanes uh, capable of. And, you know, I think for sort of historical reasons and kind of different agency kind of reasons, we just historically have never done anything like that on hiring analysts to look into Chinese economy and tech. And as you say, it would be pretty cheap to do so. You know, you could probably for a few tens of millions of dollars a year uh, stand up a pretty decent team of economists and technologists just to analyze, to, to, to do the nat data and analysis. I think you you really need Congress uh, to step up and actually direct uh, some appropriated money uh, to that uh, to that purpose. But I think that is, if I think about long term, you know, long term, low cost, high impact kinds of things that we should be doing as a government, investing in better economic and technological analysis. The U.S. China relationship is where I'd start. 
And the beautiful thing is like, you don't need spooks to run around and pay people for secrets. Like you just, it's, you know, 98% of what would have made your decision-making easier could be, um, could be sort of collected in the open source is my personal opinion. So, all right. So, so then kind of coming back to the, the other side of the question, Peter is like, to what extent is like bureaucratic sludge that has accumulated over decades also, um, uh, an uninhibiting factor, be that sort of regulatory bureaucratic sludge, or just like the, you know, the way these organizations are, are set up that the, the white house has to interact with in order to, you know, make change in the world. So I think it is less around, uh, what you would characterize as bureaucratic sludge and more around, um, too many demands on too few people combined with uh, legitimate differences of opinion on what the right thing to do among uh, agencies uh, are. So, you know, I look at um, a an agency like Commerce Department's Bureau of Industry and Security overseeing U.S. export controls. Pretty small agency, right? A couple hundred people doing uh, everything um, from dealing with all of the export controls on Russia to uh, dealing with the semiconductor uh, rules on China to just processing loads of kind of run-of-the-mill export control licenses for dual-use goods going to, you know, Middle East, Europe, wherever, that just have to be processed, like tend to get approved because it's something that you just need to verify is going to the right, you know, user or not to a illicit user, uh, but you still got to process. The law requires you process those applications. And what we've seen over the last, you know, five or six years now is just a workload that has probably doubled or tripled and, you know, staffing that is up by, I don't know, you'd have to ask them, but probably 20, 25% at most. And that is just going to result in capacity constraints uh, on, on policies. A friend of mine over there put it recently in a public interview, you know, we spent 100% of our time on Russia, 100% of our time on China, and the remaining 100% on everything else. And I'm actually very sympathetic uh, to that argument. So I think it is, it is, it is at the kind of line officer, operational officer, it is, it is not, I think you actually have pretty talented people, uh, generally speaking, uh, across the board, whether it's at commerce or at state, you just don't have enough bodies to actually uh, go out and execute. Now, you know, I do think when you get up to the senior officials, you know, kind of politically confirmed officials who are the substantive decision makers on, you know, what are, are we going to do a sea change uh, in our approach to export controls on China? Are we going to, you know, fund them? Are we going to, you know, substantially change uh, tariffs uh, towards China? I think there, you know, these are complicated issues that have long-term economic ramifications, important ramifications to companies. And so it shouldn't be surprising that going into processes, you have senior officials who weigh trade-offs a bit differently and that it might take, you know, some months for them to kind of work through, um, you know, work through amongst themselves uh, where they want to go on one of these big ticket, big ticket items. But I think it is kind of a combination, as I say, of like legitimate, you got senior people who have 
you know, legitimate kind of priors on how they might want to approach uh, an issue that they got to work through. And then you just need more bodies to actually go out and execute. So the bodies to execute thing, I think that's a relatively straightforward thing. And there's a probably also, you know, some some process questions, which either from a organizational or, or regulatory perspective could be, you know, 80, 20 their way out of. But the um, the the sort of senior level decision making, you know, you have to get four people to agree on a decision. And, um, you know, you have this 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 great pyramid where if where if Peter and um, uh, and and um, uh, his colleague, you know, Peter and and some and, and his colleague at his level disagree, then you sort of, you know, level it up. And that that the, the time once you go up and up, it ends up being even more limited to resolve those disputes. Um, are there any sort of like structural um, things that you think um, the uh, that could be invested in to um, to speed up, rationalize that process? Should fewer people? Are there too many people with too many equities for decisions, or, or um, are things actually kind of okay the way they are with with disagreements taking months to um, uh, uh, to resolve in one way or another? Well, I think if you simplified the rest of the world so principals and deputies didn't have to deal with issues other than China, it would probably make it easier for them to spend the time getting, uh, you know, getting the China policy uh, resolved. But uh, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. So, uh, you know, we have to deal with um, we have to deal with uh, with the world the way uh, the way we inherit it. I, I think actually on a more serious um, on a more serious note. I do think the U.S. government should be thinking about what the right bureaucratic and organizational structure to handle competition with China uh, is. I mean, if you look historically, when we've moved from one um, kind of foreign policy paradigm to the next, you've seen the U.S. government respond uh, structurally as well as on policy, right? So after 9-11, paradigm became we're going to have to spend, um, you know, a number of years dealing with a very serious terrorist threat against the United States. And that doesn't just mean kind of, you know, more deputies and principals meetings on terrorism certainly means that also means we're going to set up a Department of Homeland Security. We're going to set up a national counterterrorism uh, center and really expand that to, you know, yep. really make sure we have we have structured ourselves appropriately uh, to uh, to do that. And if you look back at the you know beginning of the Cold War, I think you saw you know major reorganizations uh, at the Department of the Defense to reposition it from something that comes out of World War II. Uh, looking at a very different threat environment and very different uh, global uh, posture. And I think we should be asking now, you know, if we think, as I do think, you know, the the big foreign policy challenge, big foreign policy paradigm of the next, you know, 10 to 20 years is going to be great power competition, particularly with China, we should be thinking about how do we want to be organized on that? And does that mean you know, realigning resources between agencies? Does that mean, you know, consolidating certain functions? Those are hard conversations. And obviously, it, it takes a lot of time to realign. And I don't want to discount the upfront costs of of looking at reorganization. But uh, this isn't a challenge. It's just a one-year challenge. And I'm not convinced 
that we have the best structure across the government now to handle it. I don't have the magic solution. You know, I'm not uh, yeah. an organizational expert, but I do think um, probably just managing everything within the existing structure and lots and lots of deputies and principals meetings isn't the best way to handle it long term. Do you have, uh, uh, I mean, this is putting you on the spot a little bit, but I don't know. Are there, if there are three things you could just like move around or, um, you know, continuing on that line of thinking, like, are there, are there, nothing's low hanging fruit when you're talking about bureaucratic reorganization, but w w what are things you, you see as, or, or have diagnosed as, as, as problems that need, um, addressing? Yeah. I mean, so one problem that I could see addressing, and I don't know what the solution you know, the exact solution to this is, is I don't think we're doing as good a job as we should on integrating our trade policy toolkit and our sanctions and export controls uh, policy toolkits, right? So you can see, for example, right now we're putting a lot of uh, pressure, obviously, on uh, China's ability to build leading edge uh, semiconductors. Uh, one of the things we see the Chinese doing in response very logically uh, is to move kind of down market, move more into legacy uh, and that sort of, uh, and that le legacy logic and that sort of thing. Um, I think you can kind of look at this scenario and you can see, well, in the next couple of years, there's a serious risk. We're going to be flooded with the imports of low cost Chinese legacy uh, semiconductors, not just the US, but the world, which is then going to actually build Chinese dominance on some of this uh, more legacy semiconductor ecosystem. Traditionally, the way uh, a government would handle a flood of low-cost imports from a competitor would be trade policy tools like tariffs and things like that. But we just haven't synced these tools up uh, very well. And I do think kind of thinking through what should be the relationship kind of organizationally as well as from a policy perspective between our trade, uh, our trade policy toolkit, our export controls policy toolkit, and our sanctions policy toolkit? That's one area I would start. I should also just say a little sort of aside. I think on the trade policy toolkit in particular, we need some statutory modernization because the, the tools we have inherited many of which, frankly, date to the 70s or before, are just not well situated uh, to um, to this era of great power competition we're facing. So what would be your what would be your dream? Uh, uh, I don't know, hammer and, and, and wrench for um, strategic trade policy. Well, I think that we need a um, more I, I mean, you know, these are all very complicated issues that I think, you know, Washington needs to work through over a period of months and a couple yeah, of years. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, come you on. You know, aren't just sort well, of come you, up okay. with it. But I think, we, so a couple of things, like, you know, I think on the trade policy front, we need a more flexible set of trade tools that let us uh, act not only against China, where you see a 301 sort of flexible, a lot of challenges with 301, we have some flexibility. We need a more flexible set of tools that when we see some action coming down the pipe, we can move more uh, quickly uh, at it. I think we also need a more flexible uh, set of policy tools to deal with what Chinese companies are doing in third countries. You know, you've really seen... Um, kind of 
the Commerce Department and the part of the trade policy it has be a little bit slow in uh, closing off the ability of example for Chinese solar companies to dump product that they make in Southeast Asia in the US. That's not because of like bad faith or bad intentions on the part of the Commerce Department. It's that they have a regulatory process that by statute takes a very, very long time and they have too few bodies working on it. So I just think this whole set of trade policy tools, we need to have a you know real think about what they should look like and then we need to do a better job of linking those up with the sanctions and export control uh, sets of policies. Yeah, it, there's this, you've seen moments of this over the past few years, I think, um, uh, illustrated most uh, more cleanly and it's something that's crystallized with me where there's really like wartime bureaucracy and peacetime bureaucracy. And, um, you know, for instance, like, like quote unquote wartime bureaucracy is what the state department ended up, uh, and, and the, and the U S military ended up being able to do in getting lots and lots of people out of Afghanistan really quickly. And look, that was messy. I'm sure lots of laws were broken. Um, but, um, there was, there were these, sort of insane policies around, you know, you being in a five-year wait list if you were, uh, you know, an Afghan to get a to get a visa. And it was clear that there were real exigencies and those were um, overlooked for, a, you know, magical window of a, of a few weeks before everything completely went to shit. Um, you also saw sort of similar energy right after the invasion of Ukraine, where um, uh, the, the sort of U.S. government alongside its allies took some very aggressive steps to, um, uh, to, to, to try to restrict uh, uh, Russia's um, sort of global uh, uh, economic wherewithal as well as specific exports to them. And we can have a debate on to what extent it was successful. But clearly there was like a level of um, uh, verve in the response to that, um, which is different, I think, than the, um, you know, what you've seen of what's been done with the current tools when it comes to sort of China and and, and trade policy stuff. Uh, Peter, like th thoughts on like wartime versus peacetime bureaucracy and, and what can be, um, uh, um, you know, what happens in those moments versus um, uh, uh, during like regular order? Well, that is actually fundamentally why um, I think that for China, it makes sense to think about what structures and bureaucracy should look like. Because when you have a policy issue that is spread in a widely disparate way across a lot of uh, agencies, you can only move very quickly and you can only sustain action when the senior most leadership are, you know, 90% focused on that uh, issue. And that's kind of what, as you say, you saw with Russia in the run-up and right after Ukraine. It was an overarching so crisis. Cabinet members could spend, you know, huge amounts of time uh, on it. Not sustainable over the long term. And I think with China, you know, given there are always Sorry, going to let's, be... Let's stay, yeah. let's, stay on the, let's stay on that moment for a second. So, like, when a cabinet secretary is like, this needs to happen now, like, how does that change... You know, would not 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 even just a cabinet secretary. We're like the cabinet all agrees that this needs to happen now. Like, how does that sort of change the the energy and the and the processes which would happen different if you know it was only ten percent of that um, that person's day? Yeah, well, I mean, 
you know, to your point, you have lots of different agencies. Point we've been talking about, you have lots of different agencies involved in these decisions, and you know, agencies do have sometimes differences of view and different strengths uh, and different capacities. And where you have, you know, a rhythm of, you know, daily or near daily cabinet and deputies meetings, which you have in, you know, a crisis, whether it's kind of Afghanistan or, uh, you know, Russia or those kind of crisis situations, you know, that group of people can kind of resolve their agency differences and task things out and, you know, and move it on. And if they can't do it today, they can do it tomorrow because they're meeting again tomorrow, right? Yeah. And and so you just have that cadence. Whereas when you have an issue that is enormously important, but not, you know, the at such a rolling boil that everyone has to meet, you know, daily on it, it's just, it's much easier for, you know, kind of differences to simmer for a couple of weeks until the next meeting. And then it's another couple of weeks, another couple of things. Whereas if you kind of think through the organizational and structural side, uh, then you actually have like fewer players who have to make those decisions mm. and are kind of more empowered by themselves to go out and um, to go out and, and, and execute against them. Fascinating. Um, this is this is why you guys come to China talk, right? Just just make just making sure. Um, so, uh, okay. So, I think any other final thoughts on like structure of bureaucracy before we actually talk about things people care about? I do think it's important. You know, if you'd asked me at the beginning, and I and my 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 view on it has evolved. So, if you'd asked me at the beginning of this administration, I would not have been thinking we need to make structural changes. I'd be saying, nah, we can work it out, you know, as an interagency. And, and the upfront costs of structural changes in the U.S. government are very high. I think after three years, two years, in, you know, in government, and then looking at this over the last, from the outside over the last couple of months, looking at U.S.-China competition as a signature issue of the next decade or, you know, 10 to 20 years, we do need to be thinking about the bureaucracy and getting the bureaucracy right. So we mentioned Russia, and maybe we'll we'll start there. So there's been a sort of narrative among the uh, uh, media and blogosphere that like Russia has actually been like surprisingly, you know, good at getting machine tools in through Azerbaijan, uh, Azerbaijan, and and sort of figuring out a way to like uh, use the um, uh, the you know monetary and fiscal resources of what uh, of what they have left to like kind of muddle through, which wasn't necessarily the expectation starting in, 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 in February of last year. Um, do you have a sort of like diagnosis of what went like right or wrong with the global um, campaign to, to, to isolate the country? Let me make a couple of points on Russia that I think are relevant as we think about China. So first, I think in the run up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, you know, we focused a lot on using the threat of sanctions and export controls as a deterrent to try to persuade Putin not to invade. And I think we ultimately overestimated the impact that that threat would have on Putin's uh, calculus. I, I think Putin thought the sanctions would have bite. We thought the sanctions would have bite. I think Putin thought the sanctions uh, would have bite. I think his view was essentially that uh, Ukraine was a nice piece of real estate. He'd be able to take it. 
and nice real estate's expensive. I, I think that was essentially, and and so he was happy to pay, uh, happy to pay the price uh, for it. What he didn't understand is that he wouldn't be able to take it. Where he really misjudged was not the economic costs. It was uh, overconfidence in his own military capabilities and vast under underappreciation for what Ukraine would be able to do. And I think that's really relevant as you think about China and Taiwan or China and the South China Sea. I think it's worth and useful to threaten uh, economic consequences if China takes territory, uh, you know, in violation of basic international rules and norms the way Russia did. But I bet at the end of the day, Xi Jinping is going to worry less about the costs, which he might at some point view as acceptable, and more about, you know, can he actually accomplish the objective he wants? Can he take yeah. it? And I think that's a really relevant point for policymakers. You asked a slightly different question. So, okay, if we had sanctions and export controls that were imposed, what's the impact been? And what are the lessons from kind of how they have actually, you know, mechanically played out? And here I'd make uh, two points, Jordan. I'd say first, I think the sanctions and export controls have been a drag on Russia's effort. I don't want to overstate that. I also don't want to overstate. Uh, I also don't want to understate it. I think you know we've seen Russia probably have somewhat slower um, uh, GDP uh, than it otherwise would have. They're clearly scrambling to find these spare parts and these workarounds. It's increased cost, and I think it is. It is a drag on Putin's uh, war effort. And I think it's a useful drag on Putin's war effort. I think when I think about how we could make export controls in particular more effective, I think we as a country need to think about whether and how companies that are exporting goods uh, should have to do more on the compliance uh, front. Let me let me tell you a little bit what I mean. If you if you talk about a big global bank today that's moving money around the world, because of some decisions that the Treasury Department made starting after 9-11 uh, to really go hard against banks for sanctions and money laundering violations, banks invested hundreds of millions and in some cases billions of dollars in building out compliance infrastructure to make sure that they can control money moving around the world and to crack down on sanctions violations. So a big global bank, you know, will have thousands of people involved in sanctions and money laundering uh, compliance, which I think gives them a lot of an ability to crack down on workarounds. Yeah. A big global you know, uh, good selling firm uh, selling goods or technology, you know, might have a few dozen. It's just it's a totally different industry um, with a totally different set of expectations about what the compliance obligations are. Now, I think there are a lot of downsides to telling a company that's inventing great technology, like instead of focusing on spending money on inventing new technology, you should hire thousands of compliance people like that's a big trade off if we tell them that. But I do think we want to think through what the balance is in terms of getting, you know, some other parts of uh, the multinational kind of corporate world beyond finance a bit more focused on export controls compliance. And look, you know, there are smart ways to do this. 
and there are more and less effective ways. And there's ways where you create a lot of paper and there's ways where you actually learn things. So like the, the, you know, hiding an air tag inside of every like machine tool that gets sold, um, seems to be like a thing that really should have happened, um, after the, um, uh, after the war started. And then, you know, you, with that little air tag, you like program in something where, um, it starts a fire if it enters the Russian Federation. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, it, is very upsetting to me um like that corporations haven't in and of themselves like really invested in 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 this sort of stuff given how much of it is coming from um you know even you're even like like europe and 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 south korea and japan like places that like are not super fans of 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 of, of ukraine getting um uh, uh getting invaded and, and and i do i think they're look like Clearly, like the corporate responsibility thing isn't going to get us where we need to be. So thinking a little more um, creative, clearly about where these like like where these like goods are going around the world and just whose, um, you know, whose throat should be held to choke. It seems pretty important. And I just, um, you know, if I look back historically and began drawing some analogy from sanction sanctions, the reason the banks began to take sanctions and AML seriously after 9-11 was, I mean, you know, I think they were focused on it for understandable kind of global policy reasons. But what it really was, was the Treasury Department shifted from an enforcement approach of we'll go out and find a lot of small violations and kind of start, you know, giving uh, $10,000, $100,000 fines for small violations. If they basically went to a couple of large financial institutions and said, You've had major failures, and we're going to start finding you hundreds of millions to billions of dollars yep. uh, for those failures. And lo and behold, all of a sudden, the financial industry starts taking things, uh, uh, taking t- taking these issues uh, quite a bit more seriously. Yeah, and and that's sort of like a wild thing that I um, have uh, learned over the course of looking at at forced labor as well. It's like what happens when you get caught with forced labor? It's like the goods get impounded. And that's, which is like, wild. Um, uh, so, so do you know the story of like why Treasury had the the, the sort of like lack of a ceiling um, on um, uh, on this sort of stuff? Was that just like a like a like a wrinkle in history? I can't imagine like something like that. You know, indemnifying corporations for violating export controls to the tune of hundreds of of, of millions or billions of dollars is like a regulatory change that would be particularly easy to get through and and. Uh, you know, through an OIRA or, 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 or today's Congress. Yeah, and there are there are different statutory regimes, of course. As you say, the penalties uh, are different. Uh, and I don't want to over-analogize. But, but actually, if you look at the history, I think it was very deliberate and in a way kind of visionary on the part of a couple of uh, individuals at the Treasury Department at the time and kind of the post 9-11 uh, era who saw, um, who frankly saw an opportunity to say, look, if instead of kind of going out and looking to give lots of, of slaps on the wrist, if what we do is we make a couple of examples of uh, banks where if they don't fundamentally change the way they do business, it is existential for them because they yep. will face fines that put them out of business. I think these guys at Treasury, 
quite consciously said what that is going to do is drive a shift, not just by the couple of banks we're going to impose huge fines on, but by everybody else in the industry who's going to be worried about being treated similarly. And I think it was actually a very um, thoughtful, strategic, and quite deliberate uh, shift in approach driven by you know, a couple of individuals who had a vision of, we have a tool that we can use to drive systemic change by an entire industry. We got, we got two agendas. We got, uh, you know, Goldwater Nichols for U.S.-China competition, but for all of the U.S. government. And then we've got, um, uh, and then we've got a, um, uh, my, my air tags for, um, uh, for export controls, um, uh, flourishing. Um, let's turn now to, uh, international diplomacy for a second. So, you know, part of what you were involved in the sort of broader Biden administration um, has been pushing on for the past few years is is helping to, you know, crystallize and 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 institutionalize this like growing international consensus that like China is a problem and a little scary and maybe we should all work together more to, um, you know, figure out what to what to do about it. Um, you know, thoughts or reflections on the the work that has been done, the progress that's been made, the sort of accelerants and decelerants of that. Um, you know, global coming together of, you know, Quad, IPEF, G7, G20, whatever sort of group you want to um, uh, uh, apply to these, uh, uh, to that, to that frame. Yeah, no, and I appreciate you bringing this up because I think one of the things you've seen the Biden administration really focus on is the global diplomatic outreach and the building uh, of a uh, coalition for a more hawkish posture on China. And I do think that's one of the areas of difference uh, between, obviously, the Biden administration and the Trump administration. Trump administration, very disruptive, very effective at putting China on uh, the agenda, both domestically and internationally. But, you know, let's just say it wasn't their strength of going out and building global diplomatic uh, coalitions. And I think you've seen this administration really focus on it. I think there are kind of two parts of building a global diplomatic uh, coalition, one of which has been kind of raising awareness of the problems, you know, just like talking a lot publicly as well as privately about here are all the problems we see from China. Here's what they're doing, because, you know, if you want to get France or Germany or South Korea on board they need to understand both what the problem is and also, frankly, some of their public needs to understand what the what the problem is. And so you, you got to kind of build a public narrative and there's both a, a public diplomacy campaign and then a kind of building a narrative with senior officials. And then there's the part you bring up of, OK, we're raising awareness of these problems and some solutions. What are the actual kind of architectures that we want to put together to you know, kind of collectively work on the solutions. And I think there you have seen the U.S. Uh, probably focus first and foremost in the China context on the, the G7 and really kind of reviving uh, the G7, both for Russia uh, and for uh, China, but also realizing beyond the G7, which is kind of core industrial allies, it needs a couple of different platforms uh, to bring along you know, more developing world partners that are obviously not in the uh, G7. And that's where you really see them focus on, uh, you know, IPEF um, and and those kinds of frameworks as ways to get uh, get the developing world partners uh, on board. Peter, is there like any point to U.S.-China economic dialogue today? 
bi bilateral economic dialogue. Like what's like the maximalist, like optimistic view of what those, what like the sit down with like whoever your Chinese counterpart is, who's like actually chatting with you and like looking for, you know, solutions to problems. Like what, what could that get you? So, so I think it is important uh, to talk to the Chinese and to have an open line uh, of communication with the Chinese. I think the trick is to not expect that we're going to get results from the dialogue, concrete results from the dialogue, uh, or to decide that we're not going to take action against the Chinese because of the dialogue. You know, when I was in the Obama administration, the Chinese, I think, would often try to play us by saying, well, you know, you, the Americans, should hold off on taking some action because let's just talk about it for three months or six months. And then the talks would never go anywhere. And I think one of the things the Biden administration has gotten right is to say, we're just going to move forward with our actions. We're not just going to be played for time in endless diplomatic discussions. That said, when we are taking a set of tough actions, like the semiconductor rules, like some of the things the administration has done on, um, uh, on forced labor, I do think we need to explain it to the Chinese to minimize the chances of them misunderstanding what we're doing or overreacting in response. And so I think it was great that Secretary Raimondo, uh, as I've seen in the press, you know, when she was over in China, said, you know what, more is coming on semiconductors, and here's what it is, and here's what it isn't. I've seen in the press that Secretary Yellen had done the same thing with the outbound investment order when she was in China before that came out. Just explain this is coming. Here's what we're doing. Here's why. Here's what it is. Quote, unquote, is this is China. coming. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. you know. So, so I, I, I think that, I think that, um, I think it is useful uh, to have these discussions where we are explaining what we're doing. The key is to make sure we don't fall into a trap of not taking actions like that because yeah. we think the Chinese are going to give us some solution through dialogue. Yeah, because that is the critique um, that you've seen a lot in the in the media and maybe even on this podcast as well, um, that the sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, a basically like post-balloon uh, Biden policy has been um, uh, relatively, you know, overweighting that that like let's um, let's chat and and you know maybe slowing things down that would have um, uh, that would have uh, or, or you know under investing in things that would have um, uh, come out a little more amplified if that if that hadn't. Um, uh, yeah, I don't think we should be slowing things down or pulling our punches. Uh, for dialogue. I think the reality of the last decade is we're not going to get results that we want uh, much out of, you know, endless dialogues with the Chinese. You know, if the reason we're having dialogue is to explain what's coming down the pipe, I'm all in favor of it. Yeah. Um. So, Peter, what am I doing here? Like, what is this podcast? So I, um, I think China Talk has, uh, you know, over the last... Uh, at least year, uh, you've been doing it for longer than that, but I feel like you've really broken through uh, in the last year. I think you've been doing just a uh, great job at elevating the debate and discussion on China by giving uh, experts from across a wide range of backgrounds a chance to you know, really dig into complicated issues uh, and to explain them 
but to do so in a way that senior policymakers, senior folks in the media, senior folks around town uh, can actually understand. And I think you've really, you know, in an era when it's so easy to just resort to talking points on China, but also on any other issue, you've really created a forum uh, for substantive, sustained, and thoughtful debate about what the American approach to China should be. You've also, and I commend you a lot for this, because I think those of us who think about China a lot from the Washington perspective, we think about it from the Washington perspective. I think you've done a very effective job, and one of the things I've enjoyed about this podcast is when you bring in experts to talk about it from the Chinese perspective and try and get into their head uh, about what they're trying to accomplish here uh, and how they are thinking about some of these same uh, issues, which is a perspective that we need to understand in order to effectively compete with and outcompete them. Um, that is extraordinarily complimentary. Um, maybe last last thing, like feedback. I don't know. Like, are there questions? You know, wh what do you want the China Talk series on? Like, what do you want to see more or less of um, going forward? I mean, you've had a great uh, you've had a great um, set of guests, obviously, on the semiconductor and technology issues. I think there's a lot going forward. And I think, you know, Washington needs to have more of a debate about um, the digital and data set of issues. You know, you alluded earlier, there was a big sort of flurry of debate earlier this year about TikTok that seems to have faded away. I think some of that is statutory issues. And then relatedly, you know, U.S.-China data flow, very complicated, technically complicated uh, set of issues. And I think something we need to address, but we need to have a thoughtful and considered approach about how to do so and not an issue that's going to go away uh, anytime, uh, anytime soon. Um, and then I think about, you know, I mean, things are on my mind addition to data, I think about the supply chain vulnerabilities we face that we don't know about, you know, kind of what I think Don Rumsfeld would have called the uh, unknown unknowns. You know, we kind of know we have supply chain vulnerabilities on, uh, you know, certain pharmaceutical uh, equipment and on, you know, critical minerals and this kind of thing. I think there's probably a lot more out there that we don't know what our vulnerabilities are. Certainly, I'm Skeptical the U.S. government knows what our vulnerabilities are. And I think something that would broaden the debate on the, the suite of, of kind of supply chain choke point vulnerabilities we face from their side uh, would be useful uh, in the coming months. Uh, Peter, you got a song for us? <laughs> no, you don't want to hear me sing. <laughs> uh, uh, fair enough. Peter Harrell, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk. Jordan, thank you so much. It's a pleasure.
Yeah.